guys open your Bibles uh, to the book of Jonah, and we're going to be wrapping up today the book of Jonah. Um, we have been in the book of Jonah today. It's going to be seven weeks. Next week, we're actually going to be starting a brand new series uh, going through the book of Colossians, so we invite you guys to be a part of that as well. We're going to be in the book of Colossians until the, uh, until the fall, and then um, it's about four chapters. My encouragement to you would be to read the book of Colossians. It shouldn't take you that long to read through it, but it's a way for you to kind of Get your heart meditating upon God's word, letting it begin to take root in your life, uh, so that when we begin to take a look at it, it uh, makes sense, hopefully. It's a prayer. Um, we're going to take a look at the last chapter of the book of Jonah. In fact, I'm going to do something that uh, might shock some of you. We're actually going to go through an entire chapter uh, today um, in, in, in one sermon, um, not five, just one. And uh, I know it's shocking, but we're going to do it. Uh, chapter 4, um, what I want to do is I want to read all of chapter 4 and then I'll pray and then we'll get to work taking a look at this final chapter in this book. And so uh, verse 1 starts off like this, it's the word but, but I'm going to kind of go back, give you a little fast, uh, just kind of segue as to what happened before. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that Jonah was called by God to go be a preacher, to share uh, God's, judge, uh, God's message of judgment upon the people of Nineveh. In other words, it was God's way of basically saying, unless you correct your path, uh, you will go down a path of brokenness, and it will be a judgment that will be just that will come upon you. So Jonah went, and in the Hebrew, he basically preached what amounted to a five-word sermon. Um, in some of your translations, it might be around between seven or eight, but at the end of the day, uh, there was like no empathy, no sympathy, no heart. It was just like, uh, I'm going to tell you guys, here's what's going to happen. God's going to judge you later, and that was about it. And uh, what happened was some, something, something totally unprecedented, uh, totally unexpected, unplanned for. Uh, and Jonah noticed that actually the people of Nineveh repented from their sin and turned to God. So God did a miracle in and through Jonah's words whereby this whole entire nation basically repented from its sin and went an entirely different course. And so uh, Jonah not expecting this actually kind of led to a point where he was frustrated. We'll talk more about that in a moment, why Jonah was so frustrated but chapter uh, 4, verse 1 starts off by saying, but this action, meaning God's choosing to not judge uh, Nineveh, but actually choosing to pardon Nineveh and embrace or accept Nineveh, uh, this actually displeased Jonah, and verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah is saying, I'm mad at you, God, because of who you are. You're merciful because of all these things. So that might not make a lot of sense right now, but hopefully uh, as we get into this, it will. And then he says in verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me that I die than to live. And then the Lord said, do not... Do you, not do, do you do well to be angry? In verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. He sat on the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in its shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his, from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, and when dawn had come up the next day, God appointed a worm that it attacked the plant so that it withered, and the sun rose, and God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, God, it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, did not make it grow, which came up into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And, you sh- and should I not pity Nineveh? It's a great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also have much cattle. Let me pray. God, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts, our minds, our understanding. This is your revelation, God. This is your word. And God, I pray that it would be more than just simply information. We can sit here all day long and study information, and it will never move us or change us or transform us. God, what we ask for is that 
your word would not just simply be information, but it would be revelation that reveals to us your character. God, it would reveal to us those things that we hold on to, those areas that we trust in that are actually contributing to our brokenness so that we can turn from them, turn to you and find freedom, find life. So we commit this morning in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start out this morning by a statement, and here's what I want to say before we jump in. In short, um, Jonah's running from God is actually inextricably linked to his running from his own life. Let, let me repeat that again, and I'll unpack it. Jonah's running from God is actually inextricably linked to his running from his own life. What we've been saying all along is that God... By nature, God, by revelation, has revealed himself as being a God of life, God of light, and a God of love, right? Light, life, and love. And so to run to God would mean to run into light, which is like wisdom, run into life, which is, you know, fullness of life, and run into love, which is what we all long for. Uh, Conversely, to run from God would be not to run into more life, more light, more love, It's actually to run from life into death, run from light into darkness, and run from love into exclusion, into alienation, into being an unknown person, being anonymous. In other words, Jonah, in running from God, which is really the whole story that we've seen from the very beginning, his life's not getting better. Every single time he makes another uh, modification to his plan and his agenda to run from God and flee from God. His life is actually getting more broken down. He's becoming more disintegrated, more falling apart, more trouble, more calamity, more problems are falling upon Jonah's life. Because again, like I said, Jonah's running from God is inextricably linked to his running from his own life. And this is one of the paradoxes that we discover and find in our own lives. We have sort of this tendency, the Bible describes it as our sin nature, whereby we want to somehow, I mean, even at a very young age, we want to somehow divorce ourselves or remove ourselves from any types of authority figures in our lives. And we see this at a really young age, even when we're talking like kids, we even kind of had a category for it, it's called the terrible twos, which if you're a parent or if you've ever babysat kids, you know the terrible twos is just basically code for the kids crazy. All right, the kid just wants to have absolutely nothing to do with mom or dad. And then things get a little bit better, and then they go through another phase where basically they revert back to that again. We call that the teen years. All right, oftentimes. Uh, Not every teen acts like that, but the point of the matter is there's a tendency. I mean, the Bible describes, uh, we've kind of described uh, sin uh, throughout the past few months and years as a church by understanding this is, there's several different ways that you can look at sin. Sin can basically identify it as, as, as a way of emancipating ourselves from the image of God. The Bible describes us as bearing the image of God. But sin is to basically say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. If I'm associated with God, I don't want to have anything to do with being associated with God. So I will run from God. I will emancipate myself from him. We see this sometimes in you know, teenagers or kids that are in their early 20s that are basically brought up in the family, and they hate their family, so they want to run from their family as far as they can, and so they try to live in a way that's completely antithetical to the way the family trained them up. They live in rebellion. It's a way of basically saying, emancipating themselves from that family, that family lineage, that family tradition. That's what we do as inherent sinners running from God. We try to remove ourselves as far away as we can from God to emancipate ourselves. Another one... Uh, you can describe sin as basically a way of vandalizing peace, vandalization of shalom. In other words, the, the, the more we delve into our sin nature, we don't become more peaceful. We become more aggravated, more agitated, more full of anxieties. Because shalom, this peace that comes from God, is actually being vandalized, being broken down. So the point of the matter is, is that there's this ten- tendency in our hearts that basically says, we don't want to have anything to do with God. We'll remove ourselves from God. We'll emancipate ourselves from the image of God. We'll vandalize peace. We'll run away. We'll kind of carve out, define our own lives, our own lifestyles. And what we oftentimes begin to discover is that we are not more living. I'm not even sure if that's a phrase. We are not full of more love. And we are not full of more light. We oftentimes discover that the darkness is darker. The life is lost. 
peace, shalom is gone, non-existent. And we don't find ourselves more filled, more satisfied by love. We find ourselves more alienated, more distanced, more marginalized, more troubled. The Bible describes that as basically being broken down. That's what happens in our lives. So, again, going back to what I said with Jonah, Jonah's running from God is inextricably linked to his running from his own life. To put this in sort of a New Testament terminology, in fact, uh, I'm going to jump right into what we'll be taking a look at here today, which is two specific things, and that's it. So there's kind of two things we'll identify or try to understand. The first of which we'll take a look at is the enslaving posture of Jonah's heart. Because what we'll discover is that Jonah is really not free. He's not free. And this is the irony of the whole story. He's the prophet. He's a Jew. He has the Bible, all right? Uh, I've been saying this all along. If you were to basically take Jonah and kind of remove him from, you know, the culture that he was living in many, many thousands of years ago, 3,000 years ago, whatever, and deposit him into the culture here in America, Jonah would basically be a Bible-believing, fundamentalist, Christian, uh, watches Fox News, votes Republican, uh, he's really into, you know, religious t-shirts, and he's got scriptures all over his coffee mugs and car. He would be the classic depiction of a straight-up, Bible-believing, fundamentalist Christian. So in other words, my point is that Jonah would look like everything in his life is right and orderly, very moral, very upright, reads his Bible, goes to church, memorizes scripture. But Jonah's not free. This is the irony of the story. And so what we're going to begin to see is that he has this posture of his heart that keeps him from being free. The second thing we'll take a look at, and we'll finish with this, is really the liberating love of God. Because the whole chapter, in verse, chapter 4, is really all about God liberating not only the Ninevites, and we saw that kind of happen at the end of chapter 3, but also God intending to liberate Jonah, who's also bound. So not only is and are the Ninevites bound, Jonah himself is also bound. So let's jump in and begin to take a look at, first of all, the enslaving posture of Jonah's heart. Jesus in the New Testament would say something like this in John chapter 8, verse 34. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And this is another way of basically Jesus saying, everybody has sinned. Everybody has somehow sought to emancipate themselves from the image of God. Everybody has somehow turned in upon themselves. Everybody has sort of hijacked their own lives and have tried to make a run or a good for their own lives. Everybody has done this. And what Jesus basically says is that everybody who's done this at some point becomes a slave to sin, meaning they're not free. Jonah wasn't free. I'll give you an example. Jonah was not free to walk into Nineveh Go up to the worst idol-worshipping pagan, sit down with him and have a meal, give him a hug and be like, you know what, I pray that God rescues you. I pray that God helps you. I would love to invite you to come into my house and be my friend. Jonah wasn't free to do that. He hated the Ninevites, didn't want to have any relationship with them. He just simply wasn't free. All right, why was Jonah not free? Well, for one, Jonah's going to tell us at the beginning of the chapter... Uh, We'll look at this more in just a moment. But he basically says, the reason why I ran from you, God, was because I knew you were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and all these other things. And and you might look at that and be like, why would Jonah run from that, from God? Because what he was basically saying was, if if that grace, compassion, kindness was being poured out upon me, I would run to you. But what he's basically saying is, because I knew that that grace, compassion, kindness was not going to be being poured out upon me, because it already has, but it's going to be extended to be poured out upon my enemies. And you're going to be the agent by which it's going to bring about my grace and my revival upon these people. Now, why would that be such a big issue for Jonah? Well, here's the reason why. The Ninevites weren't just some simply random pagan, idol-worshipping nation out there in the wilderness, which, by the way, is in sort of modern-day Iraq, which back in that day was basically the main... Uh, powerhouse, world-governing, world-powerful nation of the world. And uh, they had one of the greatest empires. The problem is, with that empire, though, they were very oppressive. And they were particularly oppressive to the, uh, to the Jewish people. In fact, uh, at one particular point in the people of Israel's life, uh, the way that the Assyrians would come in is they would basically conquer cities and regions. And oftentimes what they would do is uh, the Assyrians were notorious for basically trying to... Uh, 
destroy the culture of the nation that they were invading. And the way that they would destroy the culture was to not simply outlaw, you know, certain cultural elements. So in other words, if you were to, like, go into Canada and be like, no more maple syrup, like, that wasn't how they did them. They wouldn't, like, legislate saying, you can't do this. What they would do is they would actually uh, impregnate the women of that nation, and it would basically be a long process. So in other words, you would create sort of hybrids, kids that were sort of half Jew, but birthed by or sired by uh, men from the Assyrian nation. So in other words, these kids would be rejected within the Jewish culture. Check this out. Want to know who the offspring of the Assyrians and the Jews were? Uh, Samaritans. Kind of takes you a little bit in the New Testament. You're like, now you know why the Jews hated Samaritans. Now you know why Jesus sort of had this kind of uh, uh, interesting, humorous type of way of making the hero of his story a Samaritan. What do you think Jesus was saying when he gave the story of the Good Samaritan? Is his sort of ironic way of saying, you know the people you hate? They're the hero of the story. The people that you are prejudiced against, people that you've written off, people that you've marginalized, people that you have just simply consigned to everlasting death and destruction are the ones that are going to be saved. Jesus is absolutely ironic in this whole scenario. So, in a modern-day context, it'd be like a Jew who had his entire family and land and property ransacked by, let's say, the Taliban. Right? And his, uh, his children, his daughters, were raped and impregnated by Taliban warriors, warlords. And then God were to come to this guy and be like, hey, listen, you know the Taliban live up in Pakistan, that area up there? I want you to go to them, bring my message to them, by the way, they're going to repent, turn to Jesus, and they're going to be saved. They're going to be part of your family. And in your mind, you're like, I will never do that. Those people deserve judgment, not grace, not compassion, not kindness. What they did to me, what they did to my family, what they did to my property, my land, my nation, my reputation is deserving of death. And Jonah runs from God because really at the end of the day, what we'll look at as I've been saying all along, that I believe Jonah's great sin was not disbelief in God, per se. It was an inordinate love for his own countrymen, his own country. In other words, Jonah loved his own nation and felt security from being a Jew. I've said this all along, that at the beginning... When Jonah was going through the storm and the people asked him, you know, who are you and where'd you come from and where are you going? What's your problem and so on and so forth. Jonah doesn't go into this whole spiel of talking about, oh, by the way, I'm a rogue prophet. God called me to go be a prophet and I ran from him. And this is why there's a great storm. Jonah basically answers by saying, you want to know who I am? I'm a Jew. In other words, I'm not like you guys, pagans. I'm a Jew. I don't worship false gods like you guys. I worship God, Jehovah God. You guys worship weird gods. I worship the true God. Jonah is really proud of being Jewish. Jonah is really proud of his heritage, really proud of his national. In other words, Jonah's real, I think, idolatrous affair was he loved his identity. He found life in his own identity as being a Jew. And so therefore, when God basically spoke to Jonah, says, Jonah, I want you to expand the family. It's going to go beyond. Grace is going to begin to pour out beyond the Jewish nation into people whom the Jewish nation hates. In other words, hit your enemies. And I want you to be the spokesman. Jonah's like, no, I can't do that. I refuse to do that. And he went AWOL. And that's what we see with Jonah. So in other words, Jonah was a, Jonah was a slave to sin. He was bound to sin. and He wasn't free. So I want to basically describe a little bit at least six things, probably more, but these are just some of the things I want to take a look at here in the text that I see that Jonah's sin basically caused or created, uh, in a sense, in Jonah's life. You want to think of it this way. There's fruit in it. There's root. And the root of Jonah's life, the root of Jonah's heart was a sin of, of uh, extreme nationalism, uh, these idols in Jonah's heart. But the fruit of it basically extended in certain other ways. Uh, the first thing that we noticed, I think, in the story in chapter 4 is that really Jonah's sin clouded his judgment. And you kind of see this a little bit in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, where Jonah starts out again. He says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So the question is, who was Jonah angry with? Jonah's angry at God. Why was he angry at God? Because God volitionally chose 
to show grace and mercy and withhold judgment upon this nation, that Jonah really actually wanted judgment to fall upon this nation. Now think about it this way. Jonah's ability to even rationalize, to think clearly, was really clouded. Because Jonah was really biased towards his nation. And so therefore, if you're an enemy of the Jewish people, which Jonah loves, then you're my enemy and should be an enemy of God. And basically what happens is this is not the playbook that Jonah had intended. This wasn't the play that Jonah was expecting to happen. Rather than God smiting or destroying or crushing the Jewish or uh, crushing the Ninevite people, the Assyrian people, God actually says, I'm going to withhold my hand. I'm not going to judge them. I'm actually going to receive them. I'm going to accept them. Jonah's really mad. And so what we see, first of all, is his judgment is really clouded. He doesn't see clearly because of these things. So he's angry with God as a result of this. The second thing we see is that it really disordered his affections. It disoriented his ability to have right affections. Now, take a look at this. It's kind of interesting because oftentimes... When we think of, like, uh, racism, racism, what's the first word that typically comes to your mind when we think of a, a racist? Someone who, what? Fill in the blank. A racist is somebody who hates, right? We always think of it that way. So we always oftentimes associate racism with extreme hate. Uh, I want to throw out something to you to think about this in another way. Racism, the hate that comes out of racism is actually the fruit. The root is an inordinate love. It's going to sound kind of shocking, but the root of racism is not hate. It's love. It's it's an inordinate amount of love towards something. So let me give an example. Throughout Nazi Germany, the way that Hitler was pitching his entire uh, cell to the nation was not by saying, let's go out and hate people and kill them. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was like, you know, German people are the best. We have the greatest nation. We're the most technologically advanced. We've got to protect it. And anything that basically comes in or interferes or destroys or mars or sucks life out of it or becomes uh, kind of something that kind of replaces that, we've got to get rid of because what we want to secure and protect is the glory of the German people. In other words, it's an inordinate amount of love for something you shouldn't have that type of love for. And ultimately, that leads to an inordinate amount of hate. So I want you to think about this. In our hearts, in our lives, if there is an inordinate amount of hate coming out of your life towards certain people, towards certain races, towards certain demographics, you've got to look first at what is it that you are showing an inordinate amount of love for. I guarantee you, it's not for God. It's probably for one of God's creations, something that you have found in your heart and you've taken great pride, great delight, great joy in other than God. And as a result of that, anything that begins to interfere with that love and affection that you have for that thing that you set your heart upon, you inevitably will become full of rage, full of anger, full of hatred. And this is exactly what we see. And the issue is, is not that, you know, Jonah loved too much, is that he loved incorrectly. This, guys, is the problems of our heart. It's not that we love something too much. It's that we love the wrong things too much. That's our problem. So the issue is, the question is, how do we leverage our hearts off of those things that we love with an inordinate amount of passion and affection and place them upon the things that actually matter or place them upon the one thing, God, that matters most? That's the real question. See, the gospel doesn't just simply deal with the fruit of your life. See, religion does that. Religion basically says, come to church, get your life cleaned up, start living morally, stop walking around like a pervert, start acting nice, being kind, treating people with dignity and value and respect, doing all these things, giving your money away, being generous. You can do all of that, all of that, without the assistance or the aid of God. I mean, God's still behind it somehow, graciously giving you the breath to breathe, giving you the mind to think. But at the end of the day, we can somehow improve our actions without our hearts really truly being changed. Do you agree with that? The gospel actually changes our hearts. The gospel goes deeper than just simply saying, look, it's not just your actions that need to change. It's your heart that needs to change. 
For Jonah, the issue was that he had an inordinate amount of love and affection for the wrong things. And this basically brought about a lot of disorientation in terms of his affections. Put it in a different way. The psalmist, uh, one of the psalms basically prays, God, give me a single heart. Unite my heart that I might fear you. The problem with most of our lives is that we don't love the one thing that truly matters rightly. Our loves are spread too broad and too wide. We're too promiscuous with our hearts. We love too many things. And yet what the gospel does is it calls us to, by the way, a great demonstration of who God is on our behalf for us, that it focuses our affection back rightly so that we love the right thing with the right amount of affection, right proportional amount of affection. What that does, it actually allows us to be free to love people that are unlike us. You're free. Let's say if you're older and you're like, I don't like young people. This church is filled with too many young people. I don't like them. Well, it's because you're bound. You love your age group too much. Just called it right there. All right, if you're too rich, you got a lot of money. You're like, I can't you know, give money to the homeless dude in front of Food for Less. So I don't like talking to them. You're bound. You're not free. You're too bound by the demographic, the social economic group that you're part of. You're actually bound. You are not free. And the gospel frees you. It leverages you, moves you up out of the place where your heart has sort of these disordered affections, allows your heart to be fixed upon Jesus. And as a result of that, you can love people that are not like you. Regardless of their age, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of how much money they don't have, regardless of how dirty or filthy their clothes are, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their religion, you're free to love them. Because that's how God loved you. Jesus came to us when we were still idol-worshiping pagans. Just like God came to Abraham. Just like God came to Jonah. Just like God came to Nineveh. And that frees our hearts. And so Jonah's sin not only clouded his judgment, disoriented his affections. Third thing is it embittered his heart. Here's what's interesting to me about this. Is that here's Jonah. Take a look at verse 2. This is kind of shocking to me, but listen to it. Just got to read it. It says, and then Jonah prayed. And here's what he said to the Lord. Can you imagine a prayer like this? He's like, God, I'm really angry with you. Here's why I'm angry. He's like, God, did I not tell you this when I was still in my own country? So again, I think there's another like little underlying uh, indicator as to where Jonah's heart is at. It's in his own country. He's so fixed, so focused, so fixated upon his own country that even while he's praying, he's like, God, didn't I not say this to you or remember this when I was in my own country? He said, this is why I'm angry, God, because you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Just, you guys hear that? He's angry with God because God is full of compassion kindness, mercy, love, unfailing love. That's kind of shocking to me because in reality, if you're really honest with yourself, these are the things that we wish somehow were stored up in our heart and we actually truly believe them. In the moments when we do believe them, these things are, are sweetness to us, aren't they? I mean, these are the things that allow us to put our head on our pillow and sleep soundly at night. These are the things that actually lead us to you know, high crescendos of praise and worship. When we're really thinking about meditating upon the fact that God, God is gracious to you, meaning he gives to you what you don't deserve. He's compassionate, meaning you need a shoulder to cry on, to weep in. You need a chest to lay your head upon, one that won't simply reject you, but one that will bring you in, cradle you, love you, comfort you. This is God, compassionate. Merciful, he doesn't give us what we do deserve. He was withholds, sustains judgment. He's slow to anger, meaning he's not like you and I. You know, I, we get angry really fast, really fast. All right, if you're anything like me, really fast, like it's not okay, fast. God is slow to anger, meaning he's slow to boil, in other words. His Boiling temp is really, really high. It takes a lot to get God really angry. 
These are things, if you really just take them bit by bit, look at them one by one, these are things that we savor for the most part. We savor these things. But to Jonah, he's totally desensitized to them. Sin takes the amazing out of grace. We just get stuck in our ways. We get stuck believing things greater than the fact that he is compassionate. Or we begin to think, I'm not deserving of it anyhow. What we do oftentimes is we get stuck in these moments where we actually still believe. It's, you know, some people are like, I just don't believe. No, you actually do believe. The problem is that you believe the wrong things. You might say, I just don't believe that God's compassionate. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase it for you. You do believe something. What you believe is that God is not compassionate to you. Let me put it another way. You believe that you are not worthy of God's compassion or worthy of God's grace. You know what you're actually saying? Here's God, judge of all the universe. Great, powerful, mighty. He can forgive, show compassion, show grace, show mercy to anybody. And he has this standard, this ability to do this. And then here's what we do. We say, well, I don't believe that he can forgive me. He can forgive them, but not me. Here's what you're actually doing. You're saying, God's judge, but my judgment is higher than his judgment. And my judgment says he can't forgive me. What that does is that desensitizes you to the amazingness of his grace. Jonah, ultimately, his sin really embittered his heart to the point where it took all the sweetness out of all the things of God's character and nature that should actually should have actually been sweetness to him. Uh, fourth thing, it hardened his heart. It hardened his heart. I gotta go through these things really quickly. Hardened his heart. It's amazing to me is in verse five, it says that Jonah basically went outside of the city, built a little bench, a uh, little booth, and just sat there waiting for the destruction. Have you ever met this person? Have you ever met this person? All right, maybe some of you are like, I just shaved him this morning. Like, all right, here's my point. The person I'm talking about here is the one that basically looks at their enemy and says, you deserve judgment. I'm going to sit and wait and watch. Now, if you're not a Christian, oftentimes non-Christians can do this in ways that are way more blatant. Christians, religious people, oftentimes can do this in a way that's a little bit more subdued. We might be like, well, I'm just praying for their life. Really, you're praying like that God would judge them. Like, you're not praying for blessing. That's one of the reasons why Jesus said, if you're going to pray for your enemies, pray for their blessing. Have you ever tried that? I mean, one of the reasons why I think oftentimes our lives are so filled with bitterness is we have not learned to pray for our enemies. We pray cursing for our enemies. We wait like Jonah waited for our enemies to slip up. And when they do slip up, when they do fail, when something happens to them when calamity befalls them we subtly silently rejoice we're like yes yes they deserve that because what they did but that life is bitter it's just bitter those are people that we don't like being around but see here's the thing we oftentimes can become those people and this is what we see with jonah he was becoming bitter his life was just filled with this bitterness. The, third, the fifth thing is that it isolated him. Verse 5, again, tells us he goes out into this area east of the city of Nineveh, and he basically builds this little booth. But the point of the matter is, is here he is. He's all by himself. He's completely disconnected, uh, disjointed from humanity. He's all by himself, totally isolated, totally removed from everything, because that's where his sin took him. Again, Jonah could have actually gone into the city of Nineveh and waited. Right? He could have like availed himself of like fresh coconuts taken down from trees there in the wilderness. You know, he could have sat in someone's tent or shade or hung out some little coffee shop somewhere in there. But he chose not to because he's like, I'm not free. I can't love these people. I don't want to be around these people. I hate these people. I don't have anything to do with these people. So Jonah's sin actually alienates him, sets him apart from the rest of humanity. Let me say this. As a church as a community, as people made in the image of God. We were made for community. Everything in our culture basically screams to be independent, to live independent, to be the captain of your own ship, to be the master of your own destiny, to make decisions that only you need to validate or verify and vote on, and it's all good. The problem is, is that that will oftentimes lead us to isolation, to brokenness. 
And it's people that remain isolated are the ones that oftentimes will end up becoming broken and destroyed. It's one of the reasons why we as a church, we encourage you. We can't force, we can't manipulate, we can't guilt into, but we encourage you to get involved in a community group. We have them all around the area. Sometimes we talk about them, and sometimes I think it's easy to just kind of be like, ah, it's just another event to do. No, the point of the matter is, is that we can come to church on Sunday morning, listen to a sermon, sing a few songs, but at the end of the day be completely unknown. Nobody knows us. Nobody knows what you're going through. Nobody knows the baggage that you're carrying. Nobody knows the sin that you're carrying. Nobody knows the guilt, the shame, the issues, the junk that you have going on in your life. Nobody knows it. You're not opening yourself up. You're isolating yourself. Your sin is isolating yourself. It's alienating you. And at some point, it will crush you like it was crushing Jonah. And so what we see, finally, is not only that, is that it ended up costing him far more than obedience to God would have been. This is kind of an interesting thing when you think about it this way. For Jonah to sin cost him. For Jonah to obey would cost him. Let's start with what it, cost, what it would cost to obey. For Jonah to obey would have actually cost Jonah a trip from, you know, where it's from in the Holy Land, uh, across the desert into the region of Assyria. Not only that, it would have perhaps cost Jonah his reputation, all right? Can you imagine asking your country folk who are also just like you, guys, I'm going on a mission trip. Nice, that's awesome, you're going on a mission for God. Where? Oh, we're going to Taliban country. Going to hopefully see people come to know Jesus. Really, we hate those guys. Those are our enemies. You can't go to them. Jonah's like, yeah, but God called me to go do that. And I want to be obedient to God because I love God. Uh, Jonah, we hate you. Don't ever come back. If you're successful, we don't want to know about it. Jonah, we don't ever want to see your face again. Because if you go, then you're basically saying you love those enemies more than you love us. And if you're successful, we don't want to know about it. Because we don't want to know grace has been shown to people that have raped, wounded, stolen our stuff, our goods defamed our God, defamed our name, ruined us, ruined our reputation. So Jonah, if you go, we will abandon you. It would have cost Jonah a lot to follow God. Jesus would put it this way. To follow Jesus would cost you everything. That's why Jesus would say, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. In the American church, in a lot of ways, we've oftentimes tried to make the gospel more palatable for people, more easy for people to accept. It's just try to get people to pray a prayer, to make a decision. The problem is, is that we fail oftentimes to point out the fact that to follow Jesus means it will cost you everything. I can't underscore that enough. It will cost you your life. It may cost you your career. It may cost you your uh, affirmation from your friends. It may cost you approval from your family members. It may cost you absolutely everything. But Jesus also promises in this life and in the life to come, there will be innumerable riches of grace that will be showered upon you. Flip side of this, there is a cost to disobedience. Or there's a cost of anti-discipleship, if I can put it that way. If you choose to follow Jesus, there's a cost. But there's also a cost to not follow Jesus. So let me ask you this. What did it cost Jonah to not follow God? <laughs> it cost him a lot of pain, a lot of hardship, spending three days, three nights in the belly of a nasty fish. It cost him a horrible life. Over and over and over again, it cost him. At the end of the day, Jonah got nothing to show for it. Because the cost of sin is very costly, and it promises a lot, but guarantees a little. So if you're thinking about it in this way as terms of an investment, it's actually costs more to follow Jesus, but the reward is greater it may be cheaper to follow sin, to disobey God, but the return is very little. So, the final thing I want to finish up and wrap up on is this final thought. Because in reality, Jonah was a slave. 
One of the best ways that maybe to encapsulate and to identify the story of Jonah is in the New Testament, I've been kind of saying this all along, that I think the New Testament sort of version of the story of Jonah is actually found in Jesus' story called the prodigal son. If you remember the story, uh, there were two sons. Uh, one was an older son. Uh, he was obedient to the father, stayed at home, took care of the family finances, managed the family business, and so, so, so on and so forth. The younger son, we all know his story, he left, sold everything he had, Went out, sinned, partied, lived like a rock star, did all these gnarly, horrible things that we would look at and be like, that guy's just a straight-up pagan. Yet he repented, came back home, uh, and the father, as the father saw him, embraced him. The father says, let's, you know, kill a fatted calf. We need tri-tip. We need to celebrate, have food. Someone get a ring, put a ring on his finger. It's a way of showing great honor. Someone get a nice robe and put the robe on him. Now, here's the interesting thing. In that ancient Middle Eastern culture, uh, the firstborn son um, would have been the one that would have been the heir of all things, right? He would have been the one who would have received the inheritance of everything the father had. So let me ask you this. Um, the ring, the coat, the fatted calf, all of these things actually were coming out of whose inheritance? The older brothers. Does that make sense? So in other words, it was the older brother's responsibility to go out and to manage the fortunes and the family business, and the name of the family, for which the younger son drug it through the mud and screwed it up. But the older brother was like, no, I refuse to go. And not only that, he turns irate, angry, frustrated. The father brings him in, kills a fatted calf, has a big party, brings out the robe, puts it on the son that returned, has this ring of honor placed upon him, and there's a big party to celebrate the return of the son. And guess what the older brother's doing? He's in his room pouting, just like Jonah. Because what would it cost the older son to receive the younger son back? A ring, a coat, a fatted calf, forgiveness, but the older son refused. And the older son's fate was shared with Jonas. Both the younger son and the older son were slaves to sin. The younger son was a slave to sin, immorality, and evil. The older brother was a slave to his righteousness, his morality, his goodness. Because he comes to the father, he's like, Father, haven't I been good? Haven't I managed the business well? Haven't I lived a good life? Haven't I been obedient? And why are you making me pay? Why do I have to deal with this? Why don't you ever throw a party for me? Why don't you ever give me a ring? Why don't you ever take care of everything of showing honor and blessing to me? And he was a slave to his own sin. So in summary and in conclusion... I want to finish with this thought in terms of the liberating love of God because, as I said earlier, this whole story is really about God's great love. On the one hand, it's a story of great sinners running from God. On the other hand, it's a story of a great Savior that rescues and goes out after to redeem and restore at great cost to himself those that have run. So, the reality is, is that we see that God wanted to free the Ninevites. Ultimately, and ironically, Jonah. Because both Jonah and the Ninevites were both slaves to sin. And so God wanted to rescue them. God wanted to set them free. And that's what we see. And we see that God was motivated by way of his compassion, his love, his mercy, his tender kindness, his uh, slowness to anger, and all these things. That God was actually working on behalf of Jonah, through Jonah, to ultimately rescue these Ninevite people. And the way that we see that God's li- liberating love is ultimately put on display is by two different types of means. The first of which is by way of word. In chapter 4, we see that God actually spoke three specific words to Jonah. The first word that God speaks to Jonah in verse 4, he says, why are you angry? Is it okay for you to be angry? You're angry because of my grace, my compassion. And I, I choose to pr- be promiscuous with it. I mean, Jonah, you're okay as long as I give you my love and my compassion. You break down, you disintegrate when I want to be promiscuous with my love my compassion. In other words, I want to give it to people that are not Jewish, that are not like you, that don't act like you, that don't live like you. I want to give it to those people so that they can be changed and transformed. And you're angry about that? Are you okay to be angry with that, Jonah? And then the second question that God comes to him, and he says in verse 9, he says, God said, are you angry about the plan? So again, 
Jonah goes out, God brings this plant, this plant provides shade, and lest you think it's just kind of a nice little convenience. Now, mind you, Jonah's in Iraq, all right? I've never been to Iraq. I've been told that uh, there are times in the middle of summer, Iraq can get to 120 degrees, all right? It's sweltering, all right? Here's Jonah outside. Again, he's not free to go into Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites. So what's he free to do? He's free to go find a little shack and sit in it. And God graciously gives him a vine covers him with this vine. The next day, God basically calls a worm. The worm destroys the vine, and Jonah is basically back underneath the sweltering hot sun, disintegrating, breaking underneath the heat of the sun. And God basically comes to Jonah and says, are you angry about this plant? Jonah's like, I'm really angry. I'm angry enough to die. He's like, I'd rather die because my plant's gone. And God's question to him basically in short, third one, he says, and the Lord said to him, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't make it grow. It came up into being overnight and it perished overnight. And it basically God's question to Jonah is, Jonah, do you understand that you have more compassion for a plant than for people? Your loves are so disorganized. This is what the gospel does. It reveals to us oftentimes what we love in the place of God. And until we begin to realize that oftentimes our lives, the fruit of our lives, are fueled by the fruit of our love, what we love, what we cherish, what we value. So the question is, is how then can we leverage our hearts off of those things that actually we love that are actually horrible taskmasters that are destroying us? And that's where the gospel comes in. And I want to finish with this final thought because what we see is that God acts. Throughout the story, we see that God acts. Verse 6, it says that the Lord appointed a plant. Verse 7, it says God appointed a worm. Verse 8, it says God appointed a scorching east wind. Throughout the book, we see God actually moving. God speaking, God moving. God uh, doing works and God speaking great words. And what we see ultimately in the fullness of time, according to the book of Galatians, that both words and deeds come into full fulfillment. Two realities merge into one lane. And what we see in the last little passage I want to read for you in Galatians chapter 4, says this, and when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, it's another way in which Paul was saying, all of us are slaves. Just like Jesus said, we sin, we've all become slaves. But when the appointed time came, this is Paul's way of saying, God also appointed, like a worm, like a scorching hot wind, like a bush god appointed in a a specific time in which he would actually send forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons because you are sons god has sent his spirit to of his son into our hearts crying abba father so you are no longer a slave but you are a son and if a son then an heir through god and so the heart of god is to actually liberate us set us free Jonah was religious, and he was bound. Nineveh was paganistic, and they were bound. The older brother was bound by his sin of trusting in himself. The younger brother was bound by his sin of selling everything, squandering everything. Both were slaves to sin. Both needed restoration. Both needed God to intervene. But here's the reality. Where are we going to find an older brother who has everything at his disposal, in his possession, This is what Paul is saying, is that Christ Jesus is the older brother. At great cost to himself. Took upon himself our sin, our brokenness. Upon himself, he paid the price. The question you can ask is, what did it cost God to set us free? It cost God everything. What does God spend his most valuable treasures on? you because he loves you he sees you're bound he sees we're stuck we're not free love liberates you to the degree that you believe and trust and know not just in theory not just in theology not just in doctrinal truth but in reality that God loves you and at great cost to himself, bore a price you couldn't pay. Because Jesus allowed sin 
to come upon him in full weight, where it says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore our sin, and what did it do? It alienated him from the Father. So that you and I, who live our lives alienated because of our sin, can be given a home. To the degree that you believe that, that will change your heart. It will change your understanding of the grace of God. It will change the way that you view other people that are not like you. It will turn you from simply being an admirer of God to being a worshiper. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. I'm going to have the team come on up. We have some communion we encourage you to partake of to remember what Jesus did for you. You can do it as a family. We have some rugs in the front. If you'd like to just get on your face before God and sing to him, worship him, confess sin, we will have some people off to the side that would love to pray for you. Look, being bound can be as a result of sin. It could be as a result of sin against you. Maybe somebody did something against you in some way you were an innocent party, yet you took upon yourself the defilement of their sin and it's crushing you. Jesus wants to deliver you. We can be bound by sickness and illness. Believe it or not, Jesus likes to heal. Sometimes he does. Not always. In this life. He will always, ultimately, heal. Sometimes he chooses to do it now. We want to pray for you. Those are, those are areas in your life you need prayer for. We're going to have some people off to decide to pray for you. I'm going to pray right now. Let's sing a few songs. Let's worship him. Let's confess our sin. Partake of communion. Do you need prayer? prayer. If you're here this morning and your parent, um, feel free to bring your kids in here. Uh, usually we try to end like right around 1235. If we ever kind of go beyond that, please just make sure you understand. Pick up your kids right around 1235 because kids are in there kind of a long time. They get a little bit antsy and just make sure that you can go relieve the workers. Thank the workers because they give so much of their time and energy to serve you guys by serving your kids. Uh, you can bring your kids back in here and be part of worship. That's fine. But I'm going to pray right now. Let's sing, let's worship, let's partake of communion, let's confess sin, let's be prayed for. God, thank you for grace, and we want to sing to you now. God, leverage our hearts off of the things that we love in this life that are actually crushing us, killing us, destroying us. God, place our hearts to love the right things, to love the one thing, to love the true thing, to love you. Jesus, you bear our defilement. You take and lift our shame life. That's why I want to sing to you and worship you with all of our hearts. Why don't we all stand and sing?